Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. So we've pretty much hit these these golden rules, which is staying on scene, staying on scene, um, having that cognitive offload, talking to the family. Are there any like real golden rules and focus points on resuscitation on pediatrics? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a if, if you want to get into more of the of the physiology differences and so forth. I think that um, there's always a question on airway, right? So. Obviously, airway needs to be addressed uh, you know, initially, and what we do now is the following. We come and every patient, whether you're a kid or, a kid or an adult, you get two, two big BVM breaths. And the reason I'm stressing the word big is when you have someone in cardiac arrest and, there's, uh, and they haven't been breathing, uh, obviously you want to expand that, the, that chest so the alveoli open up. But you're also at the same time, you're you're expanding the chest and you're pushing the blood out of the lung, which is kind of important. Um, so that's why those two big those two first breaths are two big breaths. And the next step that we we do in in uh, in my agency is we put down a supraglottic airway. Uh, supraglottic airway is uh, you can there there are many different uh, types out there. We have moved to the eye gel which if people haven't seen that, it's essentially a, um, uh, it's a supraglottic airway that does not require any inflation uh, of a balloon, which is beneficial to one less step. And it kind of just, um, it molds itself onto the larynx of, uh, of the patient, adult or pediatric. And we immediately start to bag that patient in cardiac arrest at a rate that's not too fast. Obviously, we want to go one breath every six seconds, although there's some good data to show maybe we should go even slower than that. Um, and so that, that's, that's point number one. Um, and then obviously there's the chest compression. So what we see a lot of people doing incorrectly is um, do they use two hands encircling the chest? Do they use one hand with a palm or do they use two hands like they're doing on an adult? The general rule of thumb is if you're a large person uh, or, you're, or you're a small person, you may have to do whatever is beneficial to get a good depth um, for that child. So we see, we still see people using two fingers like they teach in basic CPR class, which should never be done in EMS, right? So my fingers would the two, get tired or hurt. You know, it's easy on the dummy, but I don't and, think and, a real child, it'd be that easy. It's not. And and now they're going to, what they should make a recommendation of changing it so that the lay public does not use two fingers anymore, because that's a mistake. So that, that should be gone completely. Then there's the two, the two thumbs, you know, the hands encircling the chest. Um, if you're, if your uh, hands are small and you're a smaller person, that may not be the best thing for you. So you may have to convert in an infant, AKA under the age of one to one hand, you know, uh, using your palm of one hand. Um, and so a lot of people don't do the rate correct is another big one. So, um, Jaron, I don't know, in your agency, do you have any metronome or any method to determine if you're doing the right rate on a, ch- a child or an adult at the same rate? I mean, do you have any mechanism for that? Uh, so the, 
the Zoll monitors, they have the, once you connect the pads and you have that puck, um, now it doesn't work on small, small pediatrics, but if you can use the adult pads, the puck will actually give you a good rate and, uh, in depth. But if you're talking about an infant, no, there's, it's really just not being stressed out and kind of having your partner look at you and be like, Hey, slow down. Or you might want to go a little deeper, a little shallow. It's really just kind of up to other people to monitor you, which may or may not be right. the best in the situation. Definitely right. something so needs to be I'll, improved on that. Right. So, so something that's simple because what we see time and time again, I review a lot of charts is that if there's no audio cue for the chest compression, you're going to get it wrong. There's no two ways about it. So we here use uh, the striker. We use a life pack, um, formerly known as physio. And I think Zola also has this as well, but we have a metronome that we start as soon as we get to the arrest and we have everything on, we actually just go ahead and, and do the metronome. And so what we've recognized is that without the metronome, there's no way in the world to understand how fast you're going and, and, Typically, people just go really fast or they go too slow. Um, and so rate is hard to depend on somebody else. Now, someone can say to you, hey, Jaron, go a little bit deeper there. But the rate is hard to gauge without a metronome. So if we want to just go to the basics of we talked about airway, we talked about um, the respiratory rate and so forth. And now we're talking about chest compression uh, fraction and now the rate uh, is very, very important. Th those two things, if, if you're overbagging, you know, hyperventilating, you're never going to get anyone back for two reasons. Number one, the lung is squeezing that heart down every time you bag. And if you're hyperventilating, the RV, the right ventricle, cannot fill during, during diastole. And therefore, during systole, there's going to be no blood ejected. So you can kill someone with the BVM if you don't know what you're doing. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when you hyperventilate and your and your end tidal number is going down, uh, so you're, you're actually you're, you're breathing too fast for the patient. The the vessels of the brain tighten down, so you get less blood to the organ that's the most important organ that we're trying to protect during the cardiac arrest. So hyperventilation kills the heart; it kills the brain, right? And then if you're if you're compressing too slow or too fast then that's not good either for perfusion for this patient. And so if we just stop focusing on anything else except the basic BLS care, then we'll have a lot of kids come back to life. And then the third part of that is if you want to get into the ALS part of care, which is the time to epi administration. So if you get to the scene and you can get epinephrine on within five minutes of arrival, and being honest with yourself of that when that five minutes is, and not just looking at the report because of you know time of arrival and time of uh, you know there are lots of people who just kind of manufacture that EPCR and they just type in times that are not true. Yes. But if you're going to be honest with yourself, right? We we know the truth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if you're going to be honest with yourself and look at the time you arrived, did you get that first dose of Epion within the first five minutes? We've realized the only way that's going to happen is if you know the dose prior to arrival, and then um, person number two in the pit crew model, the person who actually just put the pads on, charged the monitor, and then you either uh, shock that kid or you dump the shock if it's asystole, that same person grabs the IO, drills the IO, we, we recommend the femur, 
and then gets that epi dose ready, that it has to be done in that manner because the epi doesn't work if you wait too long to give it. So great BLS care, high quality uh, and timeliness for the epinephrine. Um, and you do that three times and then you leave the scene. It's, it's pretty simple to do. You just have to learn how to do yeah, it. That, and a few things kind of went through my mind as you were talking. And all of these things, it's not like you have to go to your medical director and and say, hey, this is what you know this awesome pediatric doctor taught me. I think we need to change things. There's nothing to change in the protocols. These are all just basic things that you need to do in a timely fashion. They won't interfere with any care. We're not giving you new drug dosages. We're not changing anything but making the care guide more streamlined. And other things I was yeah. thinking, you know, with with the metronome and and knowing about bagging and compressions, to get an EMS degree these days and to be a paramedic, you have to take two classes. That's psychology, so or three classes, psychology, sociology, and your anatomy and physiology. So mm-hmm. I think I was just thinking that metronome, there's probably one on the Zol, but it's been deactivated because every medic hates the alarm. And I, I'm guilty of it myself. When I know I have that person that's just flicking that SBO2 probe off, I automatically, without looking at the monitor, hit the silence button because I don't want to hear that sound because I already know what's going on. So it's just that right. that psychology of I hear an alarm, I'm going to silence it immediately. So we shouldn't we shouldn't right. have that mindset, especially with the metronome. We definitely want to want to remember that sound and we want to have it in our head so we give good compressions and and bagging. And definitely the pathophysiology, that's really important. You're talking about, you know, compressing the right atrium, not getting enough prefill. We don't think about that kind of stuff when we're in those classes. We're just ready to start IVs and innovate, and we're not paying attention in these anatomy and physiology classes. But you can kind of connect and go back to see how important they are to actually pay attention and realize how the body works so you can offer better care. Oh, my God. Physio- pathophysiology is, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, right? It's a, and it, it explains everything, especially, you know, like, for example, there are people who say we should use a pediatric BVM on an adult because we only want to give 400 cc's in an adult. But what, what, what they're missing is understanding how the human body works when you're, they're not being bagged. So if all of us take a deep breath in, right? What's happening is that that diaphragm is pulling the lung down. So when, when, when we're breathing under negative pressure, like we're breathing normally here, the base of the lung is being pulled open. And therefore, that bottom part of the lung is, is being opened up. If you come and you only give three, 400 cc's in a patient who's laying flat, number one, and you're now switching to positive pressure, aka the BVM, and there's all the dead space up top, that that three to 400 mLs is only getting, let's say, to the nipple line, and you're not uh, expanding that bottom half of the lung. You're not evacuating the blood from that lung. And so when we come in and we say two big breaths, we say two big breaths for the pathophysiology part of it. And so it's, I mean, it, it's, it's so important, especially in cardiac arrest, to understand what CO2 does for the brain and, and why it's important not to hyperventilate a, a cardiac arrest, even though it's pediatric and pediatrics have a respiratory cause of their arrest. It doesn't matter once they're in cardiac arrest, what their cause of arrest was. If you follow their end title, the end title is 90, then yes, you should be bagging a little bit faster to, uh, to, to bring their end title into the normal realm. 
use the adjuncts, use the tools we have uh, to actually get to the right place. Use the metronome, which which I, I, I'd be shocked if Zoll didn't have a metronome. I'd, I'd have to... Uh, I'd have to, to call them and find out. But I'm probably going to check that out tonight at work, very, and uh, I guarantee you it's been deactivated. And listen, you know, we, we actually run resuscitation academies around the state now, and we, we learn from the best in Seattle, a recess academy, um, you know, Mickey Eisenberg and all the, all those folks up there. And um, the one thing that's become very apparent to us is that nobody can, can uh, do chest compressions correctly without a metronome. And you really have to practice this you can't just assume that we know what we're doing because we don't it's it's, it's very it's, it's it's all like you said psychology sociology uh, and the pathophysiology uh, is kind of important uh, in this profession yeah, definitely so um let's talk a little bit about so I'm, i've only used igel in cadavers i don't think i've ever actually placed one feel like they're a little bit better i know the research says they're a little bit better less complications with balloons and not having a syringe in regards to the um, don't know how much you read into the airways too in the part trials, but knowing that starting mm-hmm. out with a blind insertion has increased neurological function uh, over intubation. Are we switching to our blind insertion on pediatrics due to that kind of data or just less stress in the failure of paramedics being able to intubate a pediatric? Well, this is a great question. I think that the data, those two trials that you mentioned, uh, did have a big impact, number one. Uh, secondly, once we recognized that the chest, compre- the chest compression fraction, meaning the percentage of time every, every minute that you're on the chest, um, is so important to survival, we recognized that there were very large gaps. Uh, and I'm not sure if you get this after your cardiac arrest, Jaron, but we use code stat and we started looking at every single chest compression and every pause in chest compressions. And every time someone's trying to throw a tube down, all of a sudden there is a minute delay here. There's pauses and compressions there. And so based on the data, based on our outcomes uh, and based and based just on the physiology, we do the two big breaths by BVM and we throw down the eye gel immediately. And then at the discretion of our medics, we allow them to intubate, but usually that's done after ROSC. So um, a patient who's got a lung full of water and they have pulmonary edema and they're hard to bag, uh, they're, hard, they're hard to ventilate using the eye gel for whatever reason, because you can't get uh, higher pressures and you have to switch over, then we'll, we'll do that. But intubation um, has become a secondary procedure um, and it's because of all the things that you had you had mentioned there. So we have had some issues. Uh, we're working with the company to try and fix the issues. Um, the IGEL requires a downward pressure because uh, it's not like an ET tube, which is beyond the vocal cords, and it's it's it could just be taped down. The IGEL, because it's kind of stuck against the larynx, requires a constant downward pressure. Because when you're doing CPR and you're pushing on the chest, the IGEL is trying to pop out. So what the company did very smartly is that for size three, four, and five, they created a strap and some hooks, and it, it creates a downward pressure. But for sizes 2.5, 2, 1.5, and 1, all the pediatric sizes, they had no mechanism for strapping it down and, and pushing it down into the larynx. So 
um, I put a video out on the on YouTube um, on, on this. People can look it up to show people what the right, what, what at least the way to get around it is. But we're really pushing hard on the company. If they're listening, I hope they're listening. Uh, they need to put the hooks, those same hooks, on the uh, pediatric eye gel so that we can strap it down for children. Um, they've been receptive, and I'm hoping that we get to uh, a solution for that. So nothing's perfect, but I do think that uh, people should be using supraglottic airways first in cardiac arrest and then considering a um, an ET tube, A, if the supraglottic doesn't work or if they want to upgrade for any other reason. But if you have a supraglottic in and you're getting great end title, good uh, bad compliance, your O2 sats are normal, then why would you change that, right? Um, that's number that's number one. And the second thing is on every uh, eye gel, we, we throw down a, um, you know, a tube that goes into the stomach. So it's called a, a Salem sump, which is basically a 12 French tube. It goes down the port and we go all the way into the stomach and we have suction and we suction all the air out and we suction any, any fluids that are out. So um, that, that gives us the ability to do that as well. So just some kind of Again, some training things that are needed to, to be known, but um, there's the air cue out there, which is good. There, there, there are lots of other devices. The King LT we used for many years uh, very successfully. So uh, I think whatever you use, just know how to use it and make sure that, it's, uh, that you're following all your data and you're doing a very high quality CQI and you're monitoring all these cases after the fact. That, that's what a good agency will do. Yeah, it kind of um, sucks that innovation is being put on the wayside because that's that's one of our pretty fun skills we get to do. But thinking, you know, the pauses and compressions when someone's trying to innovate, it's extremely hard to innovate while, especially with direct, uh, while they're doing compressions. And I challenge someone to actually time that, have, you know, a, a first responder time you when you say, can you pause compressions for a second? And you, in your mind, only think it's about one or two seconds because you're trying to aim for those cords yeah. and pass that tube. But I guarantee you it's 10, 15, 20 seconds because you get lost in that that wormhole of the of the cords and you, time is just passing by and you're interrupting all the care, all the blood flow. Sucks we were not able to innovate, but it's it's for the patient and it's the best, the best care. And I think that's really important, just really know how to use them. I would definitely need training on the eye gel. Like I said, I've only put them in cadavers. Um, they're pretty simple to use. I like them. I don't think I'll be able to get them at my service right now. Uh, we use the Kings and everybody's pretty happy with them, but they're also very good too. Yeah, and they're very yeah. easy to put the, uh, the engine or the, the OG tube down. They have a port in the back. The King LTS, I believe has that. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And I, but uh, like just as an example, and I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but like if you had a, a two-year-old that needed a size two king, how much air do you inflate in that cuff, in, in, in that balloon? I right, have so to look at the, uh, the manufacturer's little Right, thing. right, right. So, so all of a sudden, there's some more cognitive information that you're saying to yourself, oh, God, now i got to know this information. So there, there is that additional stress of in pediatrics where, oh my God, I got to figure out the, how much air to put in this thing now. So um, so we actually loved the Kings. We did. Um, but there was some data that came out. It was a pig study. And then it was followed up. There's another cadaver study by a guy named Joe Holly that looked at the 
carotid blood flow when you have a balloon in your uh, oropharynx or in your hypopharynx. So if you took a tongue blade in your mouth all the way to the back wall, to like the sides there, uh, that's where your carotid artery is. And if you have a big old balloon that's inflated there, then people said, hey, you're limiting the flow of blood going to the brain, aka the number one organ we're trying to save. And, um, and so you're doing a disservice. That's why I switched out of the king, to be quite honest. It wasn't because technically it wasn't working. It was working fine. It was just because of the fact that I was trying to preserve blood flow to the brain and any limitation um, we, we wanted to remove. Yeah. So all, it's, all, it's all great, great discussion. It's little here. things like yeah. that, and you put them all together, and boom, we have a, a good care guide. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I, I, maybe I'll brag on my agency a little bit. I'm, I live in... I live in Davie, Florida, and my my agency, we have a hundred this is one of the smaller agencies. We have a hundred thousand population. We're expected every year to have about two survivors from cardiac arrest. We've had in the last two years 17 CPC one and two, meaning neurologically normal people playing golf, 16, uh, 17 in the last two years, and we didn't change anything except we're just doing it better. And we're doing CPR better and with the airways better. So these things make a difference, and that's a lot of people who are alive today that wouldn't yeah. have been based on what the EMS uh, professional can do. I think that's the the big thing just for a takeaway is uh, we're not changing anything. We're just doing it better. And, you know, with adults, it's a little bit different because there's just a humongous uh, amount of comorbidities that may or may not come with the patient, and that can be difficult to actually care for somebody that, you know, had a heart attack and they've already had like seven cabbages, but you you know, some of those people are not savable and, and the big man upstairs is going to take them. But if we just learn how to do this stuff better and get rid of the stress and that cognitive offload, especially with pediatrics, we can probably have a lot more of them that are able to enter into the fourth or fifth grade and, and not be, uh, yes. be dead. So. That's, and then, and you know what, and the, the, the untold stories of that, Jaron, cause I, I appreciate you saying that is that families get divorced. Um, the other children in the family end up having psychiatric illness. The, 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 the surrounding community, the friends you used to have, they go away because, oh, that family had a child who died and it's, the, the cops were there and all these types of things. And so the aftermath of a child's death is, goes way beyond and much deeper than anything you could ever imagine. And so, yeah, spending an extra two or three minutes on scene doing the right thing can change the the outcome of an entire family and a generation uh, for years to come. And so it's, it's so important for everyone who's listening to understand that gone are the days of kids are different. Gone are the days of I'm going to scoop and run because it's going to make me feel better. I mean, we have to change that mentality. We have to change it. Uh, so uh, it's very important for me. And I hope that, that, that comment sticks with everybody because that's really important to remember. As far as, you know, we've, we've gotten through these kind of pearls and these golden rules of pediatric care. Are there any recommendations for guidelines that you would recommend to kind of keep up on your, your pediatric care? That's a great question. So, you know, everyone, everyone out there knows, um, and if you're in a, if you're in a a paramedic program, listening to this, you know, that there's the, the alphabet courses, you know, ACLS, uh, which is not pediatrics, of course, but they made a PALS course. Uh, then there's PEP and there's all these other courses. I could tell you that I've been the medical director of a PALS course for many years. Um, and then once I recognized coming from the ER 
into EMS, I recognized that those courses were not meant for EMS professionals. And so uh, years ago, probably uh, five or six years ago now, um, I went ahead and created a course that I thought would be great for my for my uh, uh, agencies here. And then over over the years, uh, people around the country wanted it. So we, we've actually created a four-hour course that's hands-on. We make you drop medications. We make you speak to family members in a simulated environment. Um, we get we give you that st- uh, stress inoculation. We remove the cognitive items. And lo and behold, we're actually convincing people now that kids should be treated the same way as an adult. And um, based on these uh, recent studies that are coming out, we're recognizing that there's truly a difference being made. So uh, at EMS World this year, I'll be running uh, uh, an eight-hour class um, that, that specifically is the class that we have developed. And I, I had the privilege of doing that around the country um, in, in, you know, in, in I'm not sure that the class has been taught in all 50 states yet, but our methodology is now being used in all 50 states. And so if people are ever interested in learning more about that, uh, we would invite them to come to our class and see how we teach differently. Yeah, And we'll link all this information throughout the podcast in the notes so people will have access to kind of read up on this more. I thought it was funny. Um, Appreciate that. You know, when everybody knows when the ACLS video and the PAL video is played, we all laugh because... We're like, well, we don't have a doctor there to tell us what orders. We don't have someone to write down what orders. We don't have this closed loop communication. We sit there and laugh about it, but we don't do anything about it. You know, it's, it's me and my partner and some first responders. If we tailor what we need to, and it sounds like that's what you've done with your course, tailor what we need and put it into a training module, it would be a lot easier. Now, I think PALS is really good. All those classes are good for the introductory of what a pediatric is, what, what's normal, vital signs, what's normal, what's, what's the basis of a care guide. Um, and then you take your experiences and fill in what needs to be there, like the stress inoculation, the cognitive offload, the family um, conversation. Yes. So it sounds like that's what your course did. Right. And that, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Even, even how about just drawing up a, a dose of a drug? So uh, f- for those people out there who use fentanyl, uh, those are very small volumes for people who are using ketamine. Like my agency, we, we've implemented ketamine for everything. But ketamine is complicated, right? You can't just put in your protocol uh, ketamine for pain, 0.3 milligrams per kilo, because it comes as different concentrations. You have to mix it. You have to dilute it. So in our class, we, we specifically focus on not just the assessment and not just the figuring out what's wrong with the kid and how to talk to the parent, But then while the parent's kind of screaming and yelling, you have to drop fentanyl. You have to drop midazolam. You have to give epi 1 and 1, Benadryl, Cyamedrol, Albuterol for the anaphylaxis. You have to use push presser epi for the kid who's circling the drain. All all these things are happening, and no one ever taught you that because people just assume that because their protocol says give this, that people know how to do it. Well, they don't. And that that's what that's where our course really fills in all those gaps. I uh, I actually encourage drawing those medications up. I think that was a big pitfall in my program. Is now it's you don't think about it, but you run a cardiac arrest. Let's, we'll start with adults. You give one epi, and what we did was we took that due to you know funding, which is in every 
program. We just took that box of Epi because we don't want to waste it. And we just threw it in the patient's lap and said one of Epi, or we gave this much amiodarone and threw the vial up on the chest. No one actually knows how to draw up a medication and convert that milligram to milliliters. Now, if you use the age base and remember that you don't really don't have to convert it, but you're not throwing a box up on a pediatrics chest doing that. You need to know how much volume you're taking out, what your concentration is. You need to be able to do that without struggling. And they don't teach that in schools, and it's kind of sad. I never had to draw up any medications in school. Right. Well, here, here's what I would recommend, because you're exactly right, is that we recommend, uh, and, and all the agencies who now teach our course um, will create medication kits and we tell them where to buy the vials. We don't, we don't sell them the kits. They just, they just, you know, you can go to Walmart and buy a little $1 case and then you buy the empty vials. You fill them with, with uh, distilled water and then you just label them. And then you sit there and you, let's say you want to do a norepi or a push dose presser or an epi drip. I guarantee you there's not one person sitting out here today, including myself, who um, when, when they say to me, three-year-old post-ROSC, and so in other words, uh, post-arrest, you have ROSC, um, and now the kid's blood pressure is 40 over palp. And someone says, hey, let's give push pressure epi, or hey, let's start an epi drip. I want someone who's listening today to, off the top of their head, know exactly how to mix that epi drip, and then what rate to run it at. Are you using uh, you know, a drop set or using an infusion pump? And so what we ended up doing is creating an app that's customized to every agency, and it, it, it says exactly, take a milligram of, of epi, one to a thousand, add it to a 250 bag of normal saline. That gives you four mics per ml. Now run it at this many mls per hour or this many drops per minute. And without that information, there's no way in the world, there's no way in the world that people will figure out that, that dose for that child. And they make the excuse of, yeah, the blood pressure is low, but I got a pulse back and the hospital is only three minutes away. So therefore... Um, let's just let the hospital take care of it. Not realizing that when you come to my hospital, pediatric children's hospital, and um, there's a low blood pressure, it takes us time to get the kid registered. And then we got to go into the Pixis. We have to get the Epi. We have to mix it. All that takes a long time. So don't fool yourself that um, I'm only five minutes away, 10 minutes away, that the kid's blood pressure uh, that's 40 over palp is not going to be detrimental. It's, it's going to be bad. And that kid's not going to make it. So, um, you know, if any of your listeners are, are interested and maybe you can kind of put it in the show notes, they can just take a link and, and see what this app looks like. And, sh- and just to understand that the cognitive offloading is so important prior to arrival on scene. It certainly is. And that really just comes down to is us providing the best care possible because that's less for what the hospital does. And if you know how an ER works at all, you know that it does take time. You've got registration <laughs> screaming over your shoulder, trying to register the patient. If they don't have them registered, they can't draw anything out of the Pixis because all that stuff is pretty, uh, pretty much on lockdown. You may have something else going on where the attending is not able to come in the room and figure out what they, what kind of care guide they want to want to do. And especially as a pediatric. So there's going to be a little more chaos Correct. involved. So it's it's all about what we can do pre-hospitally, and that's really the basis of this whole episode is just learning the little it basics is, we is. can do to bring together to create a better care guide, to make it easier on everybody, ourselves, Correct. the ER, the family, 
just everyone uh, involved into that call. Right. I think that that's it's very beautifully said because at the end of the day, children's lives are saved by EMS professionals who know what they're doing. It's not me in the hospital. It's not anybody. It's not the ICU. If you bring me a kid to the ED in full cardiac arrest, having done not even the basics of high performance CPR, airway, uh, first, second, or third dose of epi, the kid has no chance. No chance. And if, if there's anyone out there who does do that and brings a kid in full cardiac arrest to an emergency department and that kid ends up walking out alive, neurologically normal, I'll take you to dinner. Okay. I, I, yeah, they got some skills that I don't know of. Right. Right. Because it's, it, it, it's just it's just not true. Right. So I travel the country and I've been to all 50 states more than once. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people tell me in EMS, the children's hospital wants us to transport the kids as fast as possible. And my response is now, go back, chief, and look at the number of children you have transported in cardiac arrest to that children's hospital and tell me how many of those children are neurologically normal today. And the answer in almost every case is zero. So that entire methodology of, uh, or the line that we are given about the hospital is going to fix the kid is complete BS. We have to change that mentality. Um, and I think that the people listening here with the next generation of, of EMS professionals, I mean, you guys are the ones who are going to change this uh, methodology. And if you're at an agency that doesn't believe it, well, show them the reality and uh, point them in the right direction to agencies around the country who are doing that and who are successful at bringing those kids back to life. That's a good good uh, point to make that this this generation of medics coming in, I'd say within the last maybe three years, two years, the especially the faux med movement, we are the generation that's yep. going to change any stigma that's out there. I don't know how, how to say it nicely, but getting rid of the, having the older generation retire that say, this is the way we've always done it and implementing this new research-based and education and knowing it, what actually works um, is incredible. And just having the free education out there, not relying simply on letter classes or simply on the same lecture that your agency produced 20 years ago. Just this new education and pushing it and showing people this research can really just change the guidelines and make our care guides a lot better, improving our protocols. Um, look at the ketamine thing. It's it's used for everything now. And five years ago, it wasn't used in adults yep. hardly at all um, in the hospitals, but in pre-hospital, it wasn't, wasn't used. But with new education and research right. and people coming out there and saying, hey, this drug is amazing for this, um, it's almost the wonder drug, so... Yeah. And, and, and you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be talking to, to this, uh, this type of audience is because um, they are able to listen to podcasts. I am guarantee you someone's listening to this right now and like their world has been turned upside down because they're, they're, they're probably thinking all along, kids are, the, kids are different, kids are different. And now all of a sudden they're hearing me say that that's all been a lie. And so it, it is a challenge for someone who's listening to this today to go back and learn more and understand more, but to understand that for, for someone like me who I was on the other side of the fence for so long, I was one of those people saying, don't do this until I started making tenfold errors. I started 
you know, I wasn't able to look parents in the eyes after a, after a, a, a pediatric code in my own emergency department. Um, and so now that we've changed it and we realize that it's there's a different way, it's hard to change 30 years of doing it the same way. And but we're really pushing hard, and uh, we're 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 very excited the fact that there's 1,200 agencies now more than 1,200 agencies who have adopted our model of care, and um, it just proof that if you know it's right and you can publish the data that it's right and the outcomes show that it's right, it'll take about a decade for people to finally understand the differences. So that's why podcasts like these are just so important, and why I'm I really very grateful yeah. that you had me on. Thank you for that. So my honor, I do appreciate it because you're one of the top people I follow in the, uh, in the FOMED on, on Twitter and everything. And you have a lot of good information that needs to be out there. And especially with this, with this topic, pediatrics can be overwhelming and it's comforting to actually have someone on that knows what they're talking about and kind of put all that at ease and bring up these basics that make it seem so much easier. Now, I'm sure I'm probably going to join, I uh, jinx myself at work tonight, and I'll probably have a pediatric call, but it's okay. I've, I've followed your <laughs> method for a while. I have a basis to know what to do, so it'll be okay. But I'll probably jinx myself. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's interesting that there's a lot of uh, North Carolina EMS agencies that uh, that, that use our methodology. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess you, you're just not at one of those agencies, but uh, North Carolina has been a great state. We know... Um, the folks at the at EMSC, they've been, you know, uh, Mackenzie Beamer, who's just an amazing resource for North Carolina, that your, your state in general, uh, for places like, you know, uh, Wake EMS and, uh, you know, all the folks there in Raleigh and so forth, uh, just just a, a wonderful EMS state. So I think I think that uh, um, what you're doing here, which is educating the public, is just uh, phenomenal. So um I think all, all good things in North Carolina for sure. And that's a, that's on my to-do list is kind of implement this method more with our agency because we're definitely, definitely a high risk, low frequency there. Um, we're mainly geriatrics. Um, but with my new flight job and everything, pediatrics come about a little bit more often. So it's definitely helpful to, to know these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The geriatrics, they have diapers too. So (laughs) that's that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I would just encourage uh, everyone who's listening to um, expand your horizons by going out uh, beyond where you live, go to a conference, uh, things like EMS World, I think, uh, is a great conference. Another another great conference, maybe for um, folks who maybe have been in, in the industry for a little while, is the Eagles Conference. Have you yeah, heard of that I've, one, Jared? I've been wanting to go to that one. I just haven't. They've never kind of lined up with my schedule. Yeah, so so this year there's going to be a move. Uh, the Eagles is now moving from Dallas to um, my neck of the woods here in Fort Lauderdale. And if you look up the Hard Rock Hotel in Fort Lauderdale, it's a huge guitar. It's a beautiful guitar glass building. Um, and so it's a June uh, 10th and 11th. Uh, sorry, June 11th and 12th, which is a Thursday, Friday. And it's run by Dr. Paul Pepe, who is just uh, the godfather. We call him the godfather of EMS. And so that's another great conference. I would encourage everyone out here to really expand, read the research, read the latest data. And then at the end of the day, put that information into practice. Uh, And then more importantly, more important than anything else is 
we, we, we take care of people. That's what we do. Uh, we're nice to people. We care for people. And uh, I think as long as you have that mentality going in, then you'll um, – those hard days, uh, like for me, the day at uh, Parkland, which is my agency where uh, 17 children were murdered, um, you know, th- th- those were hard days. But if you, if you, if you, if you're doing this for the right reason and you follow up with people, you check in on people, uh, on your colleagues, on, on families after their children have died, um, I think you're, you're in it for the right reason and you'll have a very successful and long lasting career. So that would be my biggest piece of advice at the end of the day is, uh, know, know why you're doing this and, and do it well. Yeah, those are those are good words to live on, especially on this you know sh- very stressful and demanding career. Yes, uh, like I said, we'll we'll link um, a lot of this stuff in the show notes. The uh, the papers we talked about, a uh, little information on the uh, on the course that you offer, uh, some information about the IGELs and Kings, just in case you use one or the other. Like I said, if you, anyone has any questions or there's any questions that you want to ask him specifically about this podcast, uh, we may be able to do another smaller episode on specific questions. But I think this is a really good basis on pediatric care and some pearls that we can all learn from better further our care um, and get that that old stigma out of our minds. So if there's anything else you want to uh, say to anyone, Dr. Antevi, uh, we can end it here. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you that if you, if you hit me up on Twitter, uh, I'm always happy to answer questions. Um, I think I think you have an amazing uh, podcast and you have an amazing way about you, Jaron. I'm always happy to come back on if people have uh, uh, a burning desire for other questions. I'm also obviously very engaged on the adult side as well with stroke and uh, trauma, cardiac arrest, uh, those types of topics. And so mobile integrated health as well. So if you ever if you ever want me back for anything else, um, I'm happy to happy to do that. Thank you uh, for having me again. Yeah, that's awesome. So guys, um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, about pediatrics. Hope this makes you feel a little bit better going into that situation. Hope you have more confidence and you have uh, better outcomes with these uh, smaller populations we deal with. That's all we're going to talk about this week. Um, I hope to see you next week. Y'all have a safe and delightful day. Bye.